human first, everything else after. Welcome to What's Betwixt Us, stories of working while human. I'm Lissa Mandel. What's Betwixt Us is a series of conversations about empathy at work, at work. It's about diving into the messiness and the specificity of being human on the job, any job, and how empathy isn't just a nice-sounding buzzword for company PR. It's a rebellious act of remembering that we're human first, everything else after. Today on What's Betwixt Us, I chat with Rabbi Karen Glazer Perlman. She leads Congregation B'nai Jeshurun in New Jersey, and happens to be recently married to our past guest Liz Glazer back in episode 4. Rabbi Karen talks about being the first out clergy member of her synagogue, mentoring young people, especially women, handling major life cycle events with grace, sympathy versus empathy, and how, in her words, being vulnerable really helps people relate to you. Please enjoy episode 11, Empathy in the Cloth, with Rabbi Karen Glazer Perlman. Uh, well, hello, Karen Perelman. I am so excited to have you on What's Betwixt Us. Welcome. Thank you. Um, and I would love for you to go ahead and introduce yourself to the people. Well, hello, people. Uh, my name is Karen Perelman, and um, I am a rabbi, a reform rabbi, and I work at a congregation, a large reform congregation in New Jersey, in the suburbs of New York City. And I'm really happy to be here. And how long have you been at that congregation? Because I think it's been a long run for you. So um, it's a lovely synchronicity. Um, I have only worked at this synagogue, and I started as their intern when I was a third-year rabbinic student. So I have been there 13 years, and this is my 11th year uh, as a rabbi there. Wow. Well, congratulations on that. Thank you. Um, <laughs> I, I'm so excited to talk to you because um, I've been speaking to people from all different professions and we haven't really tapped into the, um, the, the religious and spiritual segment of it. But because this is a, a show about empathy, I feel like you have your finger on the pulse of that in a, in a more deep way than most probably. So um, I guess uh, I wanted to begin by asking uh, what led you to to being a rabbi in the first place? Because I know it's such a, uh, it it's usually comes from a place that's like a calling as opposed to, you know, a pr professional obligation. And so I would love for you to tell your story of that. Sure. Um, I think you're right. I think a lot of people um, feel that there's some kind of calling. And I think, um, I once heard a beautiful description about kind of one's purpose as Kind of the middle of the Venn diagram, but it's like a bunch of circles and it's what you're good at, what you enjoy, and what the world needs. And the intersection of those things is what you should do with your life. There's probably a few others, but um, I have always been drawn to people and people's stories and um, wanting to understand why it is that people are so varied and um, interesting and complicated and wonderful. I was a big reader as a, a kid growing up and I, I found a lot of solace in kind of, um, you know, 
the Secret Garden and Gone with the Wind and Anne Frank and and those kinds of stories of women really who were, you know, in all kinds of situations and found them themselves, you know, finding meaning in them. Um, I grew up, I guess, a little bit in an unusual way. One is that my my dad was in the army. He's a lawyer in the army, and so we moved every two to three years. My whole growing up, which um, you know, both is very um, destabilizing, um, sort of for the ways that we kind of imagine childhood is. You know, the same friends, the same house, the same you know yard, and your. And at the same time, it also created um, a real sense of resilience uh, for myself and my brother and an ability to kind of jump into wherever the story was. So, um, so that was one piece that was interesting. And the second piece uh, was that my dad is, was Jewish and my mom was Catholic. Mm-hmm. And even though they raised us Jewish, we the interfaith piece of my family was really important and the uh, sort of importance of being able to, you know, celebrate different holidays. We celebrated Christmas in my house when I was growing up. Mm-hmm. Um, and even though we were Jewish, we sort of went by Jewish time and holidays and customs and life cycles. Um, that was really important. So I think the combination was, of, of all of those things um, led me to want to be connected to people in a really deep and ongoing way. And I thought as a teenager, I might be a teacher, I might be a therapist. I really loved, um, not attention necessarily, but I really loved, I was so extroverted that I kind of always needed to be getting that feedback from other people. And I always needed plans and I always needed, you know, um, to, to have that human interaction. And then long story short, although not so short, um, is that I went on a summer Israel program when I was 16, like a lot of Jewish kids do. Your parents drop you off at the airport with your suitcase. and yep, I did it. <laughs> <laughs> so you know the feeling. Yes. And um, I went to Israel and I, I found like suddenly all the pieces started falling together. And I, you know, I wasn't even though I loved human contact and I loved connection, I really didn't have a lot of um, friends. I, I was lonely. And so I, I, went to, I went on this trip and really on the like third day, I um, kind of fell into a group of friends. They were like a, a little group and one of them hadn't gone on the trip. She had gone to camp, but hadn't gone on the Israel trip. And so they were kind of looking for a fourth Mm -hmm. and um i became really close with them and then one of the rabbis on the trip asked me you know as rabbis do you know well what are you gonna do what's what's your what's your life plan and as like a pensive 16 year old i "I don't know i'm not sure what my mission is and this was also i should say that um uh we basically spent the whole summer listening to the soundtrack of rent and so all of us were kind of in this intensely uh, you know, angsty moment, you know, a lot of Alanis Morissette and Tori Amos. And oh, things. I was so there. <laughs> <laughs> so I said, I don't know. And he said, you know, I said, I like all the stuff. He said, I think, I think you could be a rabbi. And I got off the plane and, you know, at the baggage carousel at JFK airport, my dad said, how was your trip? And I said, it was great. I'm going to be a rabbi. <laughs> and what was his like, response? Oh, we can talk about that 
that later. And, um, <laughs> and from there, you know, from 16, I, I didn't, rabbinical school um, is a graduate program like after college. And so I went to college, I finished high school, I went to college and then I, I took one year off and then I went to rabbinical school when I was 23 and I was ordained as a rabbi when I was 28. So wow, I really, um, and looking back, I was so determined. I mean, really I was like a laser focus of, uh, of passion and of drive that got me to being here. So yes, it was definitely a calling. I think once I, once I sort of looked at it that way, I was like, oh, right. I've been looking for this my whole life. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. That's, that's how I did it. I, I love it. I, I mean, I love the, the laser focus. I feel like that, that drive, you know, that comes from a sense of being really uh, true to your authentic um, passion uh, is super inspiring. And I, I kind of love the way you, you began by describing this, you know, how our purpose is at the center of this Venn diagram. And I know exactly what you're talking about because I refer to that image a lot and I think about it a lot. Um, and the first time I saw it was uh, in, uh, I think I might've mentioned this on the pod- podcast before, but I don't know, um, the Japanese term ikigai, which mm-hmm. uh, is, you know, translates to your, your, the reason you get up in the morning. Um, and I can, I can picture exactly this Venn diagram that almost looks like the flower of life, all these different circles that meet in the middle that have to do with, you know, what you're good at, how you can serve, what you can make money doing, you know, what lights you up. Um, and it sounds like uh, all these different pieces uh, sort of of your life in terms of like the, the moving around piece and the interfaith piece and all sort of came together and you uh, as a rabbi or at the center of this flower, I can just picture it perfectly. And um, I, I, I really love that. It sounds like you were meant to be a person who was both a leader, but also a deep listener. Um, and I just think that's so important because you had to listen to yourself first before you could then prepare and set an example for other people to listen to themselves in a really deep and authentic way. Um, that's how, I think that's the best way to, to cultivate empathy. You set an example. Um, so before I, before I dive into more uh, questions uh, that I've been thinking about, I wonder if you wanted to uh, respond first, like with what came to mind when I first asked you about um, the idea of empathy in, in your work, empathy uh, at work, um, what, what came to mind for you in the, in the work that you do? <laughs> um, that's a great, that's a great question. I, you know, I, I, what came to me was sort of the difference between sympathy and empathy mm-hmm. because sympathy is something that I, I feel like I talk about a lot because a lot of my work is about the life cycle and, um, people often come to religion or come to community or come to faith during the really happy moments, but also really the difficult moments. So, um, and one of the parts of my work that is really difficult um, is sort of holding the space for all of the sadness and pain that the world has and just the slice, the very small slice of the world that I interact with. So I was thinking about how, um, you know, the difference between sympathy and empathy 
and um, and how how at least I sort of hold that in in my work because the ability to be empathetic towards other people is essential, but it's also really hard when, you know, my um, wife, I guess that's a funny thing to say. It's the first time I've, we just got married. So it's a funny thing to say out loud. Um, <laughs> we talk about this a lot, which is that, you know, I'm sort of always, I always have some piece of really sad or bad news to share. And not in like a, you know, it sounds funny, but, you know, I, I, I know many people who are very ill and I know many people who are struggling with a significant loss. And I know many people who are making, you know, horrendous decisions, but like every day I know, I know those stories. And so sometimes they resolve themselves, but, um, so I think that's one thing that I think a lot about is sort of how to have empathy for other people when it's a lot to hold and when, you know, the, how we do that in a way that doesn't kind of drown the person who wants to be empathetic, how to not drown them in all of that pain and sadness. So that's a very long answer, but that's, that's sort of what I initially thought of. Oh, no, I, that's, I think that's uh, amazing. And I, I really hadn't thought about the fact that, yes, of course, you in your in your work, you are with people in their very uh, extreme moments, which is very different from other jobs. Like, say, if you're a person who, you know, works in marketing and journalism or finance, um, you're you're seeing that the daily uh, the daily bits of people where they're usually hiding their bigger emotions, whereas for you, um, you really are seeing people uh, in the deepest of their emotions and having to hold space for them. And I wonder um, how you um, protect your heart from, from drowning yourself um, because you are a very empathetic person with a huge heart. And um, I wonder if there's like some self-care that you keep in place uh, to keep yourself from, from being overwhelmed. I, I think there's a few things. One is that I, I have really good support. So I have a therapist and I have a coach and I have, um, I have something called a spiritual director, which is kind of a, a couple, she sometimes calls it a couple's therapist with God. <laughs> oh, that sounds great. I think I need one of those. <laughs> you and God have couples therapy together. Um, so I have a lot of places where I put it and I share it. Um, and I have great colleagues, you know, I have great colleagues who, you know, and one of the blessings of having done it for a while, you know, I think as a younger rabbi, I was so overwhelmed. Every single story was, you know, kind of unbearable. Mm -hmm. And with a little bit more hindsight, it, it doesn't make it better, but I, I know how to handle it. Um, and I, you know, it, it's hard to describe this and I, I've never, I don't really think about it this way, but um, you know how, I, I, maybe they're still there. I haven't been in an airport in a long time, but there were these like color-coded like <laughs> terrorism level signs that yes. you see in airports, like red, orange, yellow, green, blue, whatever. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> I, I think for me, I also have kind of a, a system in my mind where there are lots of levels of terrible Mm -hmm. But there's a difference between the urgent, 
tragic situation and the urgent and then the the sort of you know the the pain that comes with just being alive so you know when you when I do a funeral, when I officiate at a funeral for someone who, um, it doesn't really matter their age, but let's say someone who has 15 great grandchildren mm-hmm. and I officiate a funeral of someone who hasn't graduated college, you know, those are really different, you know, kinds of moments. And it's not that, it's not that the person, the family of the you know, 99 year old who, who, you know, was totally with it until the last day. Mm-hmm. They're not sad, but it's, it's a different kind of sadness. Sure. And um, I, I process that, I think a little bit differently. And um, so I, I think for myself, I'm, a, I can be sort of aware of like, oh, wow, I'm having some transference. Like, you know, the first funeral I ever did was for, um, a man who was in the military and I had never seen a funeral with military honors before, which I don't know if everyone's seen, you know, they, they, um, members of the military come, they fold a flag and they play taps and there's like a, a ceremony that, that happens at the, at the graveside. And I had never seen it before and it was happening. And all I could think about was my own dad who, this will happen like one day god willing a very long time from now this will happen and i really you know after that funeral i remember i i think i went in and like i went to like wendy's or something and just sat and ate something and you know i was like okay i'm gonna have to figure out how to do this piece of my work and not you know kind of have an existential meltdown every time i do it wow yeah that's i mean and I think, first of all, brava, because I think it's so brave and such a huge burden and like mantle to carry, um, especially because you started as a rabbi so young, um, like a little bit of a superhero. <laughs> uh, and I wonder, um, you know, you're a, you're a leader and you're generally, you're the person who's at at the the front of the the room or the front of the gathering and the person that people come to when they're feeling they're most vulnerable. I wonder, um, have there been moments when your congregants um, have seen you vulnerable or when your colleagues have seen you vulnerable? I mean, whatever you're comfortable sharing in terms of like, um, you're always extending empathy to to the congregation you serve, but to what extent do they extend empathy to you? Oh, wow. Um, yeah, I think, I think it's an interesting piece of my work is that I have found, I think I used to think that my job was to kind of be strong, steady in the front, always with a smile, you know, kind of um, this real barrier between my personal life and my professional life, or if I was sharing my personal life, it should be kind of, you know, sanitized. Right. Um, you know, and, and I, I've been amazed that truly the more I'm able to be vulnerable and honest, 
I have found that that has really resonated with other people um, in ways that I really couldn't have predicted. And they have been in moments that were really difficult for me. Um, when I, the story, I mean, the, 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 big, the big moment in my life is that um, when I, um, many years ago, but my, I don't know, fourth year or my fifth year, anyway, I had, I had come to the synagogue single um, and gay and the synagogue had never had any out gay clergy before. And while I wasn't terribly worried, it still was something that, you know, was new and different. And so it took me a long time to bring any significant other to anything. Cause I think I, you know, I wanted to be the representative of my, you know, it's maybe a little unfair, but I wanted to sort of represent us well. So I didn't want to of like you know, bring every third date to, you know, <laughs> the Seder or something. So um, I, in 2013, I was in a relationship and we, um, you know, got, uh, we were dating and moved in together and, and we got engaged and we got married and we, um, we had a big, you know, they had what's called an ufruf, which is a pre-wedding blessing. And theoretically, you know, if a wedding is just a small group of people, family and friends, the ufruf, that's like a Yiddish, like a German word. Um, One of my favorites. I know, right? <laughs> and it's, um, it's an opportunity for the commute, for the synagogue community to come together. So we had an ufruf on a Friday night and I'm not, I'm not joking. I mean, there were probably five or 600 people there. Oh my gosh. <laughs> and then there was a, um, a big uh, oneg, like the food that followed and, you know, and, and, all, and we were just, I mean, really it was, it was my, my face hurt from smiling so much. And then a few weeks later, my, the sisterhood, there was a huge bridal shower and it was, you know, so then we got married and big wedding at, in the, in the sanctuary, like the big sanctuary. Um, and then um, that marriage fell apart pretty quickly. And, you know, I felt incredibly ashamed that people had put so much work into celebrating us. And then, you know, we were, we were separated, you know, right after our first anniversary. And when I came out, I mean, I felt like it was really another coming out and I was, you know, um, we didn't, we didn't make an announcement, but I, we told the board and I started to tell some people and people started to know, um, you know, I was, I really wanted to like hide under the covers. And then what's amazing is that um, I, we got divorced, like legally divorced. And right after that, I think right after that, I went to hear Sheryl Sandberg speak. And I was a big Sheryl Sandberg fan as a lean in and option, option B. And I was really into her story. And I went to hear her speak and she made this offhanded comment about being divorced and that her husband who had died so tragically was her second marriage. Mm -hmm. And I was like, Sheryl Sandberg got divorced <laughs> and she's like, she, she, she got to meet someone else. And I was really struck by the idea that option B wasn't just like a, when the bad things happen to you, but like they are, it's the, it's the mindset. And so I gave a sermon the year I got divorced about my own option B moment. And I was very honest and vulnerable about 
the ways in which I worried that I had let them down, that they, you know, couldn't trust me or, and what happened was, um, I, I mean, I, I, I get almost choked up thinking about it, but after I gave that sermon, I got, I mean, really dozens, I don't know, maybe, maybe a hundred emails and notes and calls of people who said, um, you know, I'm divorced or I'm getting divorced or I'm thinking about getting divorced or my kids getting divorced. And it was like, oh, all I did was say what my own experience was. And I was, I mean, not one piece of, you know, well, you know, you should have known or, you know, we had a big party for you or none of that. It was nothing but love and support and kindness. And then all the more so when I, you know, a few years later, got into another relationship and got remarried, the way in which people were able to celebrate and, you know, a lot of people wrote in there like, congratulations, you know, it must be so redemptive or, no, you know, it must feel really different or we're really happy for you given everything you've gone through. So the really long answer, which rabbis love to give, is that I do think that being vulnerable really helps people feel like they can relate to you. And I'm, I have a, a certainly like a calculated vulnerability. Like I'm not going to put every single thing I do on the internet and I'm really careful about social media and what I choose to share there. But in the places I can be vulnerable authentically and comfortably, I really do that as much as possible. I, First of all, I just have chills uh, and I'm so, I didn't know this about you. And um, for the listeners, uh, Karen's um, wife is Liz Glazer, who we had on the podcast several weeks ago. So two amazing women who I respect <laughs> so much and love. Um, but like, wow, I mean, that, that is vulnerability on such a, on such a huge scale to, um, you know, to really have to show what you're going through, even if it's not pretty or it's something, you know, you, you use the word ashamed, like that's, it's a lot to carry, even if you don't have an audience of hundreds of people. Um, so uh, I really commend you and I'm glad that you used your platform as a place to, to be vulnerable in that way. Um, and see, I love that you were rewarded for it and not shamed for it at all. I wonder if, um, after you had gone through that experience and been public about it, whether you found, um, because for me, I think that all, all pain is, uh, is educational, right? Um, right. And once you had gone through that experience, which I'm sure, you know, nobody's like, I'm looking forward to getting divorced. But once you had <laughs> gone through that experience, did you find that there were um, congregants, uh, young people, or especially young women who, uh, who sought your counsel because they knew that you had been through it? Yes, and I, I also think that there was sort of a a, a veil pulled back because I th I think for women, and you know I only have the experience of being a a cis woman, so I, I can't speak to others' experience, but I think for a lot of women, um, as much as you know, I was, I was raised in a generation where I could do anything. And my parents, you know, 
there was, there was so much, um, you know, the world was really mine in whatever place I wanted to go. But I think that I was raised with these subtle messages about um, being nice and being liked and being good and being, um, you know, all ladylike, you know, like cross your legs, you're a lady, those kinds of, mm-hmm. and um, so I think that partially it was like pulling the veil back from the idea that um, you can be a lot of things and, um, you know, I think for women, for a lot of women, getting married is sort of this, you know, like achievement unlocked, like the highest level on the video game and you're somehow good and wanted and should be celebrated and, you know, should be, um, you know, oh, I'm not going to call late or you don't have to work so much. I mean, all, all of these things that I think are mostly nonsense, but I think that in in kind of owning my own um, status in all my different statuses, um, I, I, I hope that I pulled the veil back to be like, okay, you don't have to be anything, right? Like you're not better or worse because you have a certain number of children. You're not better or worse because you work or you um, you know, stay at home with your kids, you're not better or worse. And kind of just opening up that conversation where women could kind of be honest. And and suddenly, I will say that sort of around that time, I suddenly had a lot of women in my office who were about my age because I got married the first time when I was in sort of my early 30s and I got divorced in my mid 30s. So there were all these women and it's like, you know, and having all kinds of conversations that I you know, I, I didn't feel especially prepared to have, but like, you know, I really want to have a third kid and my husband doesn't. And like, we, we don't know how to proceed. What do we do? <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, I, you know, you know, fertility and um, motherhood is something that I have, well, I haven't experienced it myself. It's something that a lot of women my congregants, I mean, especially, you know, are thinking about, and so women, you know, coming to me and saying, you know, um, you know, what do I do with my frozen embryos? Which, you know, like, I didn't know anything about that, but the conversation really wasn't, it, it was like a specific question, but it was really about, you know, what does my life mean? Who am I versus who did I think I was gonna be? What are my regrets? What's my pain? And so I think those are the places where, and I think that these are women who, um, and men, but mostly women who, you know, are very good at kind of seeking out help. It's like, oh, I have a problem. I'm going to get someone who to help me. And, um, you know, in a way that I, I feel very honored that people would come into my office to share their pain, um, and there's a lot of pain to be had. And I think, you know, I work in a community that is um, from the outside. I think there's a lot of stereotypes about um, the uh, Western suburbs of New Jersey, shall I say, you know, goodbye Columbus and, um, you know, people making assumptions about, you know, when you look at the square footage of people's houses or the decals on their cars, you can make a lot of assumptions about what their lives are like. Right. 
But it turns out that pain is pain. And I don't know anyone who's figured out how more money can really solve their pain. It can maybe solve some problems, but it actually doesn't, it doesn't solve pain. Um, wow. This is okay. Yes. This is <laughs> I like, I like what you're saying a lot here about sort of, uh, and you've, you've mentioned, you know, pulling back the veil and now what you're talking about is uncovering, you know, the, the river that we're all standing in yeah. uh, that connects all of us uh, is underneath you know, all these other labels or like visual cues for who people are. There's actually something deeper than that. And I find it um, really interesting that you, a lot of what your job is, is sort of like a translator for people who come to you and say, hey, this is my problem. Do you have an answer for it? And you're like, well, maybe that's not really your problem. Maybe your problem is underneath that problem. You know, like there's the thing and the other thing. There's like, what do I do with these frozen embryos? Well, let's just translate that a few levels deeper. Maybe it's about this other question, which um, I love so much because it sounds like you have become a therapist anyway, just as your younger self thought that you might. Um, I mean, would you say that's fair that there's a, there's a fair amount of therapy that that goes into your work um i i mean i guess i i, I don't want to i love to be precise in language but I, I think that there's a lot of listening and there's a lot of um yeah the translation or the deciphering of what people are really saying and you know a lot of this comes around um you know, life cycle events, you know, or a bar and bat mitzvah. I mean, even happy times, you know, weddings where, you know, I, I, I have, I think part of my job is really picking up on the cues, what people say, what they don't say, the, the raised eyebrow, the, the glance, you know, we're, we're, we're really good at kind of, um, I think human beings are really good at kind of like, acting in this way. Like, oh, I'm not going to tell the rabbi exactly how I feel, but I'm going to give my fiance a very slight glance when we mention his mother. And I'll be like, oh, okay, I got it. Um, but yeah. I do, I think, you know, I think it's, I think it's not, it's not, um, it's not therapy as much as it's, you know, it's, it's walking with people, you know, and, and it's, um, I think that's what makes my job so fun is that, you know, I'm not just seeing people an hour a week in their in the office. It's like I'm seeing you for an hour because you're asking me about the frozen embryos, and then like I'm seeing you at carpool pickup. I'm seeing you at Tachibat. I'm seeing you at the deli or the grocery store. You know, that's the fun thing I think about being a rabbi in this time is just that our lives are really intersected. So you know, yeah, and it actually makes it more complicated. Like you know, I have I have congregants who have had to say. Um, it's lovely that you DM me, you know, your, your thoughts late at night on Instagram, but <laughs> if you actually want to talk to me, that, that's not the best format, you know? <laughs> yeah, that's so funny. It reminds me of, because I, I grew up in a, in a reform synagogue uh, in Madison, Connecticut, and uh, the rabbi um, was a man, uh, and he was very, uh, he always struck me as very serious, like mm -hmm. quite scholarly um and solemn um in all the interactions that we had like in and around the synagogue but then 
but then I remember finding out that he played tennis with my dad and I was like, what? Like <laughs> thinking about him in this different context was so odd to me. And it's sort of the same thing as like see, if seeing your, your teacher from school at the grocery yes. store and you're like, hold on, you're a person. Right. Um, and I, and I think that especially the time that we live in now when those boundaries just keep getting fuzzier and fuzzier. Um, uh, but it sounds like, it sounds like you are able to, to take it in stride and you find it fun as opposed to um, awkward. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, I, I will say um, it would be unfair for me to say that I always take it in stride, <laughs> but I, I notice like I will um, like, you know, it's sort of like a, a cue, you know, your body, you know, like we all have cues, like when you're getting sick, you like have some pain and you're like, oh, this means I'm getting sick. Mm -hmm. um, but I, when I feel like if I run into congregants somewhere or people in my community, I run into them somewhere that I'm not expecting. If I, if I notice that I'm feeling, um, you know, like resentful or a little bit exposed or, you know, kind of annoyed, something like, like if I, if I have any of those feelings, that's usually a sign that I need like a little time off. Sure. Cause it means I, I, I don't have enough for me. Like, oh, I, I can't even go out for coffee without running into you. That means like, I haven't had enough moments where I'm having coffee alone or with, you know, that kind of metaphor. Now, of course, you know, we're in this strange time where I'd be happy to see, you know, anyone anywhere right about now. Um, but, um, you know, there's a, uh, there's a blessing. This is, um, I can't, this is, I'm sure going to be a lot of rabbis doing this, but, um, there's actually a blessing that you say for a friend whose face you haven't seen in a year. Now, of course the rabbis don't know if that's like Zoom. They didn't know from Zoom obviously, but right. if you haven't seen someone, they, they think actually in the flesh for a year. The blessing is, um, blessed are you God who revives the dead. And the idea being that, you know, seeing each other in body is like being alive. And when we can't be together, there is a little bit of a sense of, of loss, of, of, of death almost. And, you know, I, I, I'm feeling that a lot right now because humanity, people, stories, that's like my currency touching, you know, the idea that um, my synagogue is doing some outdoor, you know, socially distanced programming. And it, it really feels weird to have to you know, lead a Shabbat service behind a mask, you know, while people are sort of out, out in a field and I'm, you know, trying to, to find that connection. Um, yeah. But I, I do think that the, the benefit of a clergy person, even if you know they like play tennis with your dad, is that you're more willing to go to them with your, with your pain. You know, I think that's, what makes clergy, you know, not just relatable, but kind of human in a way that you can walk in with your, you know, my, the senior rabbi at my synagogue is a huge Mets fan and he has like tons of Mets paraphernalia all over his office. So, you know, people come in and they, you know, talk about sports for 10 minutes before they get to, you know, God or my marriage or yeah. something is, that's wrong. Um, yeah. um, I, wow, so much, I mean, so much to respond to. And I'm so glad that you shared that, 
blessing with me and that is uh, super interesting and resonant and um, the fact that uh, that it's like you were almost prepared more prepared in a way for what this pandemic has has forced us to do in terms of distancing in terms of not seeing each other in person and touching each other um, you actually had all these tools because you are a, uh, you know, a, a Sherpa guiding people to the next life often or helping people deal with the idea of death, um, that there is this new kind of death that we are facing right now um, that the ancient tools really work for. And it made me think of uh, like talking about doing these outdoor, you know, socially distanced programs when you have to wear a mask and everything I, I yesterday on instagram i saw my friend megan posted a picture of her on a roof with a microphone uh and an audience and she's a comedian um and it was the first time that she had done live comedy since the beginning of all of this and in posting it she said i almost cried up there i didn't but i almost cried and um it just uh really brings home this idea that um there is such there's so much loss and death energy that we're experiencing right now and i think that um i'm really grateful that people like you exist and i'm sure your congregants are as well to sort of help navigate this totally brand new and uncertain experience like using the tools that you already have that we've always had for thousands of years that's so, Lisa, that's so nice. Thank you for saying that. That's beautiful. Um, yeah, I mean, I think, I think that all of us, clergy, whatever profession we're in, you know, are having to really, it's a reckoning, you know, a kind of spiritual reckoning of, of what matters the most. And, um, you know, I, the things we thought we couldn't live without, we can, um, and the kind of, um, I don't know, I mean, if, if, it's, if it's a coming back to ourselves or coming into ourselves, and I think that's where you're getting kind of the, you know, like uh, obsessions or, you know, real interest in cooking and sewing and making, which has had, has, has had revivals, but the idea that, um, we have lost the ability to do lots of things. And yeah, you know, I was talking to um, someone I work with and we were talking about, you know, the like the going back to normal, which people love to talk about, um, you know, and I said, I think a few months ago, I thought this was a short term situation, right? We all did. And now I, I think that this is going to be the, you know, middle or, you know, early middle chapter of my rabbinate and my life are, is really going to be shaped by this. And the decisions, decisions that I've made or not made, the sacrifices we've all made. Now, this is really, this is, um, I don't think we even quite know what this is going to be. And the, you know, ability to care for ourselves and others is really gonna, I think, be a indicator of what our world looks like long-term. I mean, this is like, there's so many pieces here, right? There's like the political situation, there's economic situation, there's the spiritual, there's the educational, but how we're going to 
relate to one another after this is, you know, I, I don't, I don't know if I worry about it, but I, I do wonder what that means for the way in which human beings will interact with each other and the idea of what kind of empathy we can have for each other. Yeah. I mean, I think it's going to be, you're right, a brand new world. And, and I was just thinking about how for the people who are, for the children who are right now um, uh, old enough to, to, to be conscious and communicate, um, but not like before age eight, I would say, like before the subconscious is really um, solidified. These children who are saying, you know, when can I go play with my friends and their parents saying, I'm sorry, you can't right now. Like, how are they coming to relate to each other? Um, how are they going to understand interacting like dynamically with humanity? I don't know, but I think that people like you and other um, professionals whose job it is to really listen deeply to people are going to be the Sherpas, you know, that guide us into, um, into the new world, whatever it looks like. Uh, like emotional intelligence is going to be the most valuable currency we have. I, I agree. And also our ability, you know, I, I think uh, one thing that is so painful right now is I think the kind of knee jerk instantaneous, vilification of other people. Yeah. And I actually, I, I think the thing about it is that um, I see it from both sides, right? So, um, you know, it's, it's easiest to look at the people who you disagree with and to vilify them. But I think our, the kind of, um, the part of us that can become so angry with other people that we can become violent or, you know, hurt others, which by the way, I mean, you know, there's all kinds from both sides of the aisle, both perspectives. Um, so I think that's going to be, there's going to be a lot of unlearning that happens, which is like, you know, there's going to be a point where people like, I, I have a feeling, you know, in the, I don't know, six months, nine months that people are going to start talking about, you know, um, maskers and unmaskers and, you know, people will start to identify themselves in a way of whether they, you know, did you think it was a hoax? Did you think it was real? Did you get sick? Did someone you know get sick? And I think the ability to hold really the people we disagree with the most, to hold them up as the highest, um, still as like, you know, children of God, humanity, sure. is really going to be a test for us. And it's going to be a test, I think, for, um, I, I put myself in a, I am a uh, progressive, liberal, in all of those words. Um, and I think that a lot of people whose politics I agree with do this really toward the other way, like, you know, what they post on social media, what they say, and the ability to say, you know, I am able to see every person is made in the image of God, and man, I wish they would agree with me, or man, I wish we could be on the same page, or they would think differently, but I, I think that's going to become, we're going to have to relearn how to do that. For sure. You're right. I think it's going to be vital. It's going to be like rehab. We're going to have to go to like emotional rehab where we learn that, you know, like there's going to be a time where it's just like, will we go back to a time where we don't have our phones next to us all the time or that we are, you know, like what, what, what the world is going to look like when we kind of can return to the deepest sense of who we are. 
yeah. which I think the pandemic has really made us see is, is very fragile. Yeah, agreed. And, and just another reason why uh, I think that you're a pioneer and a trailblazer in this, because uh, if, if clergy, clergy and mental health professionals um, are holding space for people in their most uh, extreme pendulum swings, I mean, this is certainly one of them. So um, I'm happy to have you here for the challenge, <laughs> because I think that we need as many as many people like you as we can get. Uh, well, thank you. And I think also that it, it, it is everyone, you know, everyone doing their part. You know, yeah. there, there is an idea that this is not, this is not work for one, but okay, everyone, you know, everyone has a calling. Like to go back to the Venn diagram, there actually is something in the middle of those circles for every person. And the wonderful thing is that it's different for everyone. And um, it, it that allows people to kind of use their God-given creativity and passion and, and intelligence to do different things. And thank God, because, you know, I'm good at what I do, but I'm not good at everything. And, right. um, and what we hope is that uh, in a time that is really pushing people to really think about what are the important things in their lives, you know, what are the things that they're actually passionate about, that's really pushing people to kind of shave away all of the frivolous. Um, it's like we're all being urged toward this leveling up almost, toward this awakening, toward this how can I best serve the collective? Um, yeah. You know, whether we're ready or not, now is the time. Um, Karen. Boy, I always feel like after big conversations, you need like a, you know, a deep, a deep breath to let it, to let it oh, out. Oh, yeah. Let it settle in. Well, I am so happy that I have gotten to speak to you. I really appreciate your time because I know that you are Zooming all day long. Um, and I wanted to end this conversation with uh, one of the questions from the, so this podcast, you know, is, is sponsored by uh, this app, Zany, that is designed to bring more authentic human connection into remote workspaces. And so there's, you know, like an encyclopedia of, of questions that the app draws from to help people get to know each other better. So I want to end this interview with one of these questions, um, which is, uh, what is the best piece of advice you have ever received? My dad has a saying um, that um, is attributed to the motivational speaker, Zig Ziglar. I always thought that was like a joke of a name, but it's, <laughs> it's the best name. <laughs> Zig Ziglar. And he said, you can get everything you want out of life if you help enough people get what they want out of life. Oh, I love it so much. That's And so as like... As like a nine-year-old, that was like a lot to kind of handle. <laughs> but as a thir as a 38-year-old, um, I think that is true. And you know, the other um, the other piece, I, if I can just have two, because I like to break the rules, is um, Liz Glazer, my my wife. Um, she we talk a lot about. I don't know if this this isn't her advice, but she says this a lot, which is um, you know all of life is an opportunity to choose love over fear. Yes. And I, man, that really resonates with me these days because fear is like those, such an easier choice. It's like right here and it's like covered in icing. 
and like love is over there, like with brown rice and kale. Um, <laughs> but like every opportunity when I can in every single way be more loving than fearful, mm-hmm. you know, when like the person I'm on the meeting with is like, you know, not muted, can't figure out the Zoom, late, all of those things. <laughs> to choose love. Oh, that is the... Um, that is the best advice. Um, those two things are the best that's, advice I've received. They're both awesome. The latter I think about every day and I'm so glad that you brought it into this conversation. Um, this has been such a pleasure and I am sending you so much strength in this crazy time and so much love to enjoy your new marriage. And um, Thank you, Lisa. Thank you so much for having me. Um, you'll be maybe surprised to know I haven't really done very many podcasts. So this is a little bit of a new experience for me and you made it so wonderful and comfortable and easy. Oh, thank you. Well, you did fabulously. <laughs> I didn't have to do anything at all. Um, so I hope we get to see you um, in, in, the, in the flesh very, very soon. And you always have a a home in uh, in New Jersey if you ever uh, need a place to be. Oh, thank you so much. Same, same. Much love. Thank love you. to you. I'll talk to you soon. Thanks for tuning in to episode 11 of What's Betwixt Us? Stories of Working While Human. You can find out more about Rabbi Karen's rabbinic journey and her congregational home at tbj.org. What's Betwixt Us is powered by Zany, designed to build trust and authentic human connection in remote workspaces. More at zanie.app. Human first, everything else after. Human first, everything else after.